0: And now, the second half of Roe v. Wade. Part 6 It perhaps is not generally appreciated that the restrictive criminal abortion laws in effect in a majority of states today are of relatively recent vintage. Those laws, generally proscribing abortion or its attempt at any time during pregnancy, except when necessary to preserve the pregnant woman's life, are not of ancient or even of common law origin. Instead, they derive from statutory changes effected, for the most part, in the latter half of the 19th century. One, ancient attitudes. These are not capable of precise determination. We are told that, at the time of the Persian Empire, abortifacients were known and that criminal abortions were severely punished. We are also told, however, that abortion was practiced in Greek times as well as in the Roman era, and that it was resorted to without scruple. The Ephesian, Soranos, often described as the greatest of the ancient gynecologists, appears to have been generally opposed to Rome's prevailing free abortion practices he found it necessary to think first of the life of the mother, and he resorted to abortion when, upon this standard, he felt the procedure advisable. Greek and Roman law afforded little protection to the unborn. If abortion was prosecuted in some places, it seems to have been based on a concept of a violation of the father's right to his offspring. Ancient religion did not bar abortion. 2. Hippocratic Oath What, then, of the famous oath that has stood so long as the ethical guide of the medical profession, and that bears the name of the great Greek, who has been described as the father of medicine, the wisest and the greatest practitioner of his art, and the most important and most complete medical personality of antiquity, who dominated the medical schools of his time, and who typified the sum of the medical knowledge of the past. The oath varies somewhat according to the particular translation, but in any translation, the content is clear. Quote, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel, and in like manner, I will not give a woman a pessary to produce abortion or I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy. Although the oath is not mentioned in any of the principal briefs in this case or in Doe v. Bolton, it represents the apex of the development of strict ethical concepts in medicine, and its influence endures to this day. Why did not the authority of Hippocrates dissuade abortion practice in his time and that of Rome? The late Dr. Edelstein provides us with a theory. The oath was not uncontested even in Hippocrates' day. Only the Pythagorean school of philosophers frowned upon the related act of suicide. Most Greek thinkers, on the other hand, commended abortion at least prior to viability. For the Pythagoreans, however, it was a matter of dogma. For them, the embryo was animate from the moment of conception, and abortion meant destruction of a living being. The abortion clause of the oath, therefore, echoes Pythagorean doctrines and in no other stratum of Greek opinion were such views held or proposed in the same spirit of uncompromising austerity. Dr. Edelstein then concludes that the oath originated in a group representing only a small segment of Greek opinion, and that it certainly was not accepted by all ancient physicians. He points out that medical writings down to Galen give evidence of the violation of almost every one of its injunctions. But with the end of antiquity, a decided change took place. Resistance against suicide and against abortion became common. The oath came to be popular. The emerging teachings of Christianity were in agreement with the Pythagorean ethic. The oath became the nucleus of all medical ethics and was applauded as the embodiment of truth. Thus, suggests Dr. Edelstein, it is a Pythagorean manifesto and not the expression of an absolute standard of medical conduct. This, it seems to us, is a satisfactory and acceptable explanation of the Hippocratic Oath's apparent rigidity. It enables us to understand, in historical context, a long accepted and revered statement of medical ethics. 3. The Common Law It is undisputed that, at common law, abortion performed before quickening. The first recognizable movement of the fetus in utero, appearing usually from the 16th to the 18th week of pregnancy, was not an indictable offense. The absence of a common law crime for pre-quickening abortion appears to have developed from a confluence of early philosophical, theological, and civil and canon law concepts of when life begins. These disciplines variously approached the question in terms of the point at which the embryo or fetus became formed or recognizably human or in terms of when a person came into being, that is, infused with a soul or animated. A loose consensus evolved in early English law that these events occurred at some point between conception and live birth. This was immediate animation. Christian theology and the canon law came to fix the point of animation at 40 days for a male and 80 days for a female, a view that persisted until the 19th century, there was otherwise little agreement about the precise time of formation or animation. There was agreement, however, that prior to this point, the fetus was to be regarded as part of the mother, and its destruction, therefore, was not homicide. Due to continued uncertainty about the precise time when animation occurred, to the lack of any empirical basis for the 40- to 80-day view, and perhaps to Aquinas' definition of movement as one of the two first principles of life, Bracton focused on quickening as the critical point. The significance of quickening was echoed by later common law scholars and found its way into the received canon law in this country. Whether abortion of a quick fetus was a felony at common law or even a lesser crime is still disputed. Bracton, writing in the early 13th century, thought it homicide. But the later and predominant view following the great common law scholars has been that it was, at most, a lesser offense. In a frequently cited passage, Koch took the opposition that abortion of a woman, quick with child, is a great misprison and no murder. Blackstone followed, saying that while abortion after quickening had once been considered manslaughter, though not murder, modern law took a less severe view. A recent review of the common law precedents argues, however, that those precedents contradict Coke, and that even post-quickening abortion was never established as a common law crime. A recent review of the common law precedents argues, however, That those precedents contradict Cope, and that even post quickening abortion was never established as a common law crime. This is of some importance, because while most American courts ruled in holding or dictum that abortion of an unquickened fetus was not criminal under their received common law, others followed Cope in stating that abortion of a quick fetus was a misprison a term they translated to mean misdemeanor. That their reliance on Coke on this aspect of the law was uncritical and, apparently, in all the reported cases, dictum, makes it now appear doubtful that abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime, even with respect to the destruction of a quick fetus. 4. The English Statutory Law England's first criminal abortion statute, Lord Ellenborough's, came in 1803. Made abortion of a quick fetus a capital crime. But in section 2, it provided lesser penalties for the felony of abortion before quickening and thus preserved the quickening distinction. This contrast was continued in the General Revision of 1828. It disappeared, however, together with the death penalty in 1837 and did not reappear in the offenses against the Person Act that formed the core of English anti-abortion law until the liberalizing reforms of 1967. In 1929, the Infant Life Preservation Act came into being its emphasis was upon the destruction of the life of a child capable of being born alive, it made a willful act performed with the necessary intent a felony. It contained a proviso that one was not to be found guilty of the offense unless it is proved that the act which caused the death of the child was not done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother. A seemingly notable development in the English law was the case of Rex v. Bourne. This case apparently answered in the affirmative the question whether an abortion necessary to preserve the life of the pregnant woman was accepted from the criminal penalties of the 1861 Act. In his instructions to the jury, Judge McNaughton referred to the 1929 Act and observed that the act related to the case where a child is killed by a willful act at the time when it is being delivered in the ordinary course of nature. He concluded that the 1861 Act's use of the word unlawfully imported the same meaning expressed by the specific proviso in the 1929 Act, even though there was no mention of preserving the mother's life in the 1861 Act. He then construed the phrase, preserving the life of the mother broadly, that is, in a reasonable sense, to include a serious and permanent threat to the mother's health, and instructed the jury to acquit Dr. Born if it found he had acted in a good-faith belief that the abortion was necessary for this purpose. The jury did acquit. Recently, Parliament enacted a new abortion law. This is the Abortion Act of 1967. The act permits a licensing physician to perform an abortion where two other licensed physicians agree, a, that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman or of injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman or any existing children of her family greater than if the pregnancy were terminated, or b, that there is a substantial risk that if the child were born, it would suffer from such physical or mental abnormalities as to be seriously handicapped. The act also provides that, in making this determination, account may be taken of the pregnant woman's actual or reasonably foreseeable environment. It also permits a physician, without the concurrence of others, to terminate a pregnancy where he is of the good faith opinion that the abortion is immediately necessary to save the life or to prevent grave permanent injury to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman. Five, the American law. In this country, the law in effect in all but a few states until mid 19th century was the pre-existing English common law. Connecticut, the first state to enact abortion legislation, was adopted in 1821 that part of Lord Ellenborough's act that related to a woman quick with child. The death penalty was not imposed. Abortion before quickening was made a crime in that state only in 1860. In 1828, New York enacted legislation that, in two respects, was to serve as a model for early anti-abortion statutes. First, While barring destruction of an unquickened fetus as well as a quick fetus, it made the former only a misdemeanor, but the latter second-degree manslaughter. Second, it incorporated a concept of therapeutic abortion by providing that an abortion was excused if it shall have been necessary to preserve the life of such mother or shall have been advised by two physicians to be necessary for such purpose. By 1840, when Texas had received the common law, only eight American states had statutes dealing with abortion. It was not until after the war between the states that legislation began generally to replace the common law. Most of these initial statutes dealt severely with abortion after quickening, but were lenient with it before quickening. Most punished attempts equally with completed abortions. While many statutes included the exception for an abortion thought by one or more physicians to be necessary to save the mother's life, that provision soon disappeared, and the typical law required that the procedure actually be necessary for that purpose. Gradually, in the middle and late 19th century, the quickening distinction disappeared from the statutory law of most states, and the degree of the offense and the penalties were increased. By the end of the 1950s, a large majority of the jurisdictions banned abortion, however, and whenever performed, unless done to save or preserve the life of the mother. The exceptions, Alabama and the District of Columbia, permitted abortion to preserve the mother's health. Three states permitted abortions that were not unlawfully performed or that were not without lawful justification leaving interpretation of those standards to the courts. In the past several years, however, a trend toward liberalization of abortion statutes has resulted in adoption by about one third of the states of less stringent laws, most of them patterned after the ALI model penal code, set forth as Appendix B to the opinion in Doe v. Bolton. It is thus apparent that at common law at the time of the adoption of our Constitution and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, a woman enjoyed a substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today. At least with respect to the early stage of pregnancy, and very possibly without such a limitation. The opportunity to make this choice was present in this country well into the 19th century. Even later, the law continued for some time to treat less punitively an abortion procured in early pregnancy. 6. The Position of the American Medical Association. The anti-abortion mood prevalent in this country in the late 19th century was shared by the medical profession. Indeed, the attitude of the profession may have played a significant role in the enactment of stringent criminal abortion legislation during that period. An AMA Committee on Criminal Abortion was appointed in May 1857. It presented its report to the 12th Annual Meeting. That report observed that the committee had been appointed to investigate criminal abortion with a view to its general suppression. It deplored abortion at its frequency and it listed three causes of this general demoralization. The first of these causes is a widespread popular ignorance of the true character of the crime, a belief even among mothers themselves that the fetus is not alive till after the period of quickening. The second of the agents alluded to is the fact that the profession themselves are frequently supposed careless of fetal life. The third reason of the frightful extent of this crime is found in the grave defect of our laws, both common and statute, as regards the independent and actual existence of the child before birth as a living being. These errors which are sufficient in most instances to prevent conviction are based and only based upon mistaken and exploded medical dogmas. With strange inconsistency, the law fully acknowledges the fetus in utero and its inherent rights for civil purposes while personally as criminally affected, it fails to recognize it and, to its life, as yet denies all protection. The committee then offered, and the association adopted, resolutions protesting against such unwarrantable destruction of human life, calling upon state legislatures to revise their abortion laws and requesting the cooperation of state medical societies in pressing the subject. In 1871, a long and vivid report was submitted by the Committee on Criminal Abortion. It ended with the observation, we had to deal with human life. In a matter of less importance, we could entertain no compromise. An honest judge on the bench would call things by their proper names. We could do no less. It proffered resolution adopted by the association Recommending, among other things, that it be unlawful and unprofessional for any physician to induce abortion or premature labor without the concurrent opinion of at least one respectable consulting physician, and then always with a view to the safety of the child, if that be possible, and calling the attention of the clergy of all denominations to the perverted views of morality entertained by a large class of females. I, and men also, on this important question. Except for periodic condemnation of the criminal abortionist, no further formal AMA action took place until 1967. In that year, the Committee on Human Reproduction urged the adoption of a stated policy of opposition to induced abortion except when there is documented medical evidence of a threat to the health or life of the mother or that the child may be born with incapacitating physical deformity or mental deficiency, or that a pregnancy resulting from legally established statutory or forcible rape or incest may constitute a threat to the mental or physical health of the patient. Two other physicians, chosen because of their recognized professional competence, have examined the patient and have concurred in writing and the procedure is performed in a hospital accredited by the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals. The providing of medical information by physicians to state legislatures in their consideration of legislation regarding therapeutic abortion was to be considered consistent with the principles of ethics of the American Medical Association. This recommendation was adopted by the House of Delegates. In 1970, after the introduction of a variety of proposed resolutions and of a report from its Board of Trustees, a reference committee noted polarization of the medical profession on this controversial issue, division among those who had testified, a difference of opinion among AMA councils and committees, the remarkable shift in testimony in six months felt to be influenced by the rapid changes in state laws and by the judicial decisions